Tim Hernandez. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. We're now in our 12th season, if you can believe that, and we have built a really nice lineup of authors and guests for you this season. Today's guest is the uh, brilliant LA-based fiction writer and essayist, Caribbean Fragosa. I'm excited to speak with her because she's going to be our next DeWitter Fellow here at the University of Texas in El Paso, and that's a uh, semester-long residency that we have in the writing program, the creative writing program, uh, and she'll be here in the spring joining us and our faculty and uh, working with our students. So it's going to be a real pleasure having her. Uh, our last uh, DeWitter Fellow was poet Carolina Abade, uh, but that was way back when COVID, COVID first began, so we had to skip a year. Um, but anyway, it's just an exciting program, and Caribbean Fragosa is an exciting author who has been getting a lot of um, accolades and a lot of just great reviews for her debut collection of short stories, Eat the Mouth That Feeds You. And uh, we'll be talking with her about that and all of her upcoming exciting projects. That's coming up right now on Words on a Wire. Words on a Wire. Words on a Okay, Caribbean Fragosa, welcome to Words on a Wire. Hi, Tim. Hi, everybody listening. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's an honor. Oh, absolutely. And you're calling us from Los Angeles, from your home in LA. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Nice. Um, before we begin the interview, which I'm really excited to get to for a lot of reasons, I just want to remind the listeners that this is our, we're still recording out of our own homes. This is the pandemic version of Words on a Wire. You know, we normally record out of the KTEP studios on campus, uh, on the UTEP campus. But uh, just out of the safety and concern for others and ourselves and our families, we're going to continue to do that out of here. And I say that in case you hear any glitches or, or uh, pops or snaps, things that, that are a little funky in the, in the airwaves. Um, that's, what, that's, what, uh, that's where that comes from. <laughs> but Caribbean, it's so exciting to talk with you because um, first, there's a couple of reasons I want to talk with you. One of them is obviously your brand new book just came out, um, Eat the Mouth That Feeds You. It's with City Lights. It's an incredible uh, debut collection of short stories, and it's already gotten all kinds of rave reviews and a lot of excitement around it. And I want to talk to you also about your upcoming residency here at UTEP, which will be in the spring. So first, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I mean, keeping healthy, which is the most important part right now, and uh, keeping my family healthy. I have two little ones, and we're still living that pandemic life. Um, and just trying to make the best of it. I think it's challenging for everybody. Uh, but overall, it's definitely a good time. I'm very pleased with, um, as you said, the great reception for my book. I've gotten so many wonderful reviews that I didn't expect. I didn't know I was going to get. And it's just been like a wild and amazing ride. Um, and I'm very proud of this collection. It was um, it was a long time coming. And I can talk more about that later. But um, Overall, I'm good, and I, it's been a good year despite all the the craziness of the world. Right, and I mean, um, you know, I saw that, and I know you're being you're being a little uh, modest here because I just saw a few days ago that Reader's Digest came out with a 20 best books by Latinx authors that you want to read right now, and yours is among those 20 great books. And then they also say they go on to say that it will go on to become it may go on to become one of the best short story collections of all time which is a huge <laughs> honor and a huge compliment. 
and especially for a debut book, but just, uh, you know, it's, it, and, I, and I absolutely would agree with, re, agree with that. It's just a fantastic collection. How does it feel? It just, uh, I mean, it, it, it tickles me. I mean, <laughs> it's, um, it's just crazy. It's like, oh, wow, that's, you're talking about me and my book. That's wild. Yeah. So it's always an honor. And I'm just like super humbled every time I hear something like that. I mean, that was just such a huge compliment to hear of all time. Yeah. That's a, a lot of time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I I'll take it. I mean, I'm I'm happy to receive that positive feedback. Yeah, you know, and and I and I would and I would tend to agree with that. It wouldn't surprise me if it goes on to. I, I'm sure it will continue to have a long-lasting uh, sort of readership, you know, as time goes on. Because you know, the book, I think, um, it sort of has elements, or at least like these kind of tones of of classic. Uh, collections that we all know and love in the literary community, but even just in, at large, I think of like, I instantly thought of like even some of the stories of Eduardo Galeano, you know, um, when I was reading some of the, you play with this mythical ideas sometimes and, and turning sort of everyday lives into these mythical things, you know, into these mythical experiences and, and people as well. Of course, I, I have to give a nod as well to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who to me, some of that was coming through in the and the character of the little girl that gets struck by lightning and suddenly there's like this angelic child appears and you know it's just um so many incredible moments throughout the book i really felt like wow this is a book that i would want to read time and time again um and teach certainly as well um but like what spurred why don't we start there what spurred the idea for this whole collection uh, take me back to how this all got started for you yeah, well, this uh, this got started, to be perfectly honest, in undergrad. So many, many years ago is when this book got started. And I didn't conceive of it originally as a collection. These were just stories that I wrote over the years, a couple in undergrad, a couple in grad school, uh, and then uh, a whole bunch after. Um, and then some were written as recently as like after the publisher had already accepted the manuscript, I added a couple more stories. Okay. But I've always been, even though I haven't had like, didn't have a specific idea of what I wanted the collection to be about, I've always been very interested in these kinds of characters, meaning characters uh, that are that are women, that are girls, that have very strong voices and uh, and personalities, uh, that are are, are living. Uh, sometimes dangerous lives and there's always a lot at risk for them no matter what where they're at or what stage of their life of their life they're in um, so I keep returning to these characters I keep returning to similar places um, I grew up in El Monte in South El Monte in the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles County and that's really been very fertile ground for me creatively and for other writers as well, uh, Michael Jaime Becerra, uh, Salvador Plasencia, Tony Margarita, Kirkpatrick, uh, fantastic all fiction writers that came out of this little neighborhood that I'm from. Wow. And uh, we all write about this place that is not a remarkable place to look at, but there's actually a lot there historically and currently to, to be inspired by in right. different ways so anyway uh, like this return to location return to certain themes a return to characters and voices that resonate for me i think made it uh like a cohesive collection even though i didn't uh conceive of it that way from the start 
Right, right. And I'm glad you mentioned Salvador Plasencia, his book, The People of Paper was pretty, uh, it, that was one of the first books actually that jumped into my mind when I began to read your, your stories. Um, um, I thought of his work uh, because there's this kind of a, a surreal quality to it uh, as well. And, and also like a, just a fascinating sort of his creativity is, was just blew me away when I first read his work and as does yours. Um, and I'll tell you why, um, not because I'm surprised by any means, but because I know you as a nonfiction writer, um, at least that's how I've known you prior to this publication. You know, I know that you, you publish uh, essays, uh, you, you know, you're also an editor of nonfiction as well. So suddenly I, I was like, whoa, wait a minute, wait, Caribbean's writing fiction, that's awesome. And that's the, you know, and that's like sort of the first uh, sort of solo book out the gate. I know you've been anthologized before as well, but um, was that a, I mean, is that, have you always been writing in fiction or was there kind of a transition, a point where you had to transition between writing nonfiction and going into fiction? Or was that just like, yeah, was that just always there for you? Yeah, that's always been there for me. I, I did get an MFA in creative writing and I focused on fiction, a little bit of poetry, but mainly fiction by far at CalArts. And uh, like I said, even in undergrad, I was writing some short stories. I took some creative writing classes with Alicia Gaspar de Alba. Mm. And uh, yeah, the fiction has always been there, but as you mentioned, most people or a lot of people do know me for the nonfiction stuff. And I think for me, I, I guess most of the work that I've published up to this point has been nonfiction because to be perfectly honest, that's been sort of the bread and butter for me. That's where I've been able to make a little money off my writing. And that's kind of the goal for a lot of writers, right? To be able to make some kind of living or some kind of money off your writing. And so that's just kind of where the doors opened up for me all these years and those were the opportunities that I found and it they've been very um fruitful opportunities and and I'm very grateful for that um and that's something I'm always going to keep doing I'm always going to be writing cultural criticism and yeah. other nonfiction work but really like in my core I I'm a fiction writer and then I guess I could just quickly note for anybody who's interested I because at the core I consider myself a fiction writer above all else that really, I think, informs, not just informs, but it colors, it shapes the nonfiction as well. I feel like I use a lot of um, just techniques of fiction writing in nonfiction, which uh, I don't know if other people would have issues with it, but in terms of like illustrating a scene or creating uh, the atmosphere for the reader, or, or I mean, there's just certain techniques that I borrow from fiction uh, into my nonfiction. Absolutely, um, absolutely, it, and I mean that's what makes I think for just a really compelling story. You know, you're a really great storyteller um, for having the, you know, the being able to sort of utilize those two tools or those two various genres. You know, at, I have to have them and be able to have mastery over those. What you're doing here is just fantastic. You know. Um, I think I can identify a little bit with that because for me, it was poetry is my first love. And so I write everything, I think, through the lens of poetry, the way I even see mm -hmm. stories and prose as well. You're right. So I think it really does influence even if I write fiction or whether I'm writing nonfiction, there's always a sense of the poetic, I think, because mm -hmm. that's that's the first door I entered you know, <laughs> into writing. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories is uh, The Crystal Palace. Uh, and I honestly, I kept trying to think of like, why? Why is that one of my favorite stories, Crystal Palace? 
And I don't really have the answer as to why yet, but I was hoping that you would share an excerpt of that story with our listeners. Yeah, I have a, an excerpt prepared. And cool, if cool. you do think of why, I'd like to hear because yeah. uh, I, I noticed that people like that story and it always surprises me. Um, but I, I picked out an excerpt and if it goes on too long, Tim, feel free to cut me off. Okay. No okay. Crystal Palace. Look, mija, when I was maybe 17 or 18 years old, I worked at a boutique selling fancy French beauty products over there in Guadalajara. The boutique was luxurious with crystals and mirrors everywhere. Everything sparkled like a diamond, even the little glass bottles filled with the fine lotions. But I felt a little bit nervous you know, like if I moved too quickly or carelessly, I would break something. I was used to doing things using my strength and with ganas. That's how my ama taught me. You do things with ganas, mija, she would say. With ganas, you pick up the kids, my little brothers, to wipe off the dirty snot dripping from their noses. With ganas, you scrub your father's hard denim pants over the lavadero. And with ganas, you sweep our part of the street so that no one can say we are not clean people. But in this place, La Friu Friu it was called, you did everything very delicately. With finesse, my dear, the Senora Sanz, my boss would say, look, she would correct me, lifting her tiny little nose. Then she would demonstrate how my work was to be done. With the tippy tips of her fingers, she would pick up a tiny flask containing some precious fluid and carefully place it on the glass display case. You could hear the sweet little sound, a ding, like a little bell every time she showed me how it was to be done. I had the habit of taking the glass bottles and jars five at a time, picking them up and securing them against my breasts, soft and safe. You better believe that breasts are the safest place to keep important things. This is where I keep my coin purse. And mind you, I have never had a single cent stolen. Of course, it's safe so long as you keep it that way and you don't allow busy hands to make their way in there. But to eat her own chichis, I always say, this is how I would set up the boutique more quickly, pressing the precious containers against my breasts until one day, La Senora Sanz came in with her little shoes going click, 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 click over the polished floor. And she screamed so suddenly that it made me jump with fright. Dios mio, she shrieked. I dropped all of the glass jars and bottles and they broke into a million pieces on the checkered tile. The floor was splattered with precious white creams like the pigeon shit that covered the plaza outside. Such a stupid girl, she screamed at me, spitting out the words between her pearly teeth and red lips. What are you doing? You are a careless fool, a brute. Should I continue or is this a good place? Actually, let's, that's a good place right there to stop. Um, and, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Words on a Wire. And we're in conversation with the LA-based author, fiction writer, 
uh, and essayist, Caribbean Fragosa. We're talking with her about her new book, Eat the Mouth That Feeds You. It just came out with City Lights. And that was just an excerpt that she read uh, from the story uh, titled Crystal Palace. Um, and you know, I think as you're reading it, and I intentionally, I have your book here as you can see, but I, because obviously th what, the, what the listeners can't see is that you and I are Zooming this call, but, but you can see that I have it here. It's a fantastic book. Uh, and I wanna talk a little bit about also the design of it. But, um, but as you're reading it, I intentionally was not look, looking at the story because I wanted to just obviously, you know, get the author just to read that to, to uh, out loud. It's nice to hear. And it occurred to me, I think a big part of probably why that story resonates with me, I think, is because, and maybe with others, as you said, is that, you know, there is a part of myself, obviously, that I can see my younger self when I was a kid being in these types of, I remember specifically in the town I grew up in, in central California, the town of Dinuba, where my grandmother took care of us, um, there was always this little Rexall pharmacy. And my cousins, my cousin and I would walk down there and just hang out in there because we could find like, uh, you know, crafts and things like that we could make. Uh, there were like these little stick airplanes we used to like getting there. And, and there were always these, these little like sort of like a glass menagerie that was always like around there and we would touch them and then they would tell us every time the store owners would basically you know they would always like you know just get upset with us because we'd be touching these things and so at a young age I learned to keep my hands to myself in stores and then as I got older uh, accused a couple of times of stealing things that I didn't I became more aware of my hands um, in stores and I always sort of making my hands visible and then later on uh, run-ins with the police in which I always want to make sure my hands are visible but hands suddenly and the awareness of my hands and the awareness of where they were placed became very a fragile situation for me and also just very aware of hyper aware of that so I think there was a part as you're reading it of this woman going from as you said you know she's being taught to as a young woman as a young girl that you know, we do everything with ganas con ganas you know uh, but later on in this shop, she suddenly becomes hyper aware of the fragility of, of her hands touching certain objects, you know, and, and, and then the kind of almost the shame that will occur later on in the story that you didn't get to. Um, anyway, what was the seed for the story? What, what, where did you get this story from? Yeah, um, I, I got it from listening to my mother um, talk about jobs that she used to have as a young woman before she married my father mm. uh, in Guadalajara. So my family's from Guadalajara. And um, she grew up uh, like in Las Afueras and in, in the peripheries of the city and just this humble home, this humble neighborhood. Um, but then she would take the bus to the centro, to the city and would uh, work. She had several jobs in these sort of high-end, very elegant boutiques. Uh, and she didn't work in this kind of boutique. She worked like some clothing shop or something, but it was always very special. And the, and her bosses were always these very sort of uptight, like ladies that were super picky about stuff. And, and so I, I was always really interested in that sort of contrast, that sort of like moving between worlds, between uh, the space that she lived where, like you said, and like it says in the story where she was used to and required to work with ganas, where that's really valued to, to use your strength and to do things well using your body. Uh, because those are the kinds of jobs that I guess her family had and, and that many of our families have had, whether working 
construction or my dad was a truck driver or whatever in the fields to working in these very like special little boutiques, these little shops for high-end rich people, basically. It was just kind of jarring to see or to hear that contrast. So I was really interested in that. And uh, uh, yeah, I think that was the seed for it, listening to my mother's stories about working there. And, and also, yeah, and also, uh, you know, you begin the story with the mother saying, look, mija, when I was maybe 17 or 18 years old. So the mother begins to give her testimony in a way to her daughter or, or could even be her granddaughter, I don't know, you know. Uh, uh, and I know that, um, that you also do uh, like oral history project as well in partnership with your husband, who's a historian, uh, you know, Roman mm -hmm. Man. Did, did, you know, do any, so, and then you earlier had said how fiction influences your, your nonfiction. So in this case, would you say that your nonfiction has influenced some of your own fiction, your fiction as well works the other way? Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Yeah. I, I mean, listening is the best way of, of learning how to tell a story, right. learning how to, uh, I don't know, like embody like a kind of rhythm that you put mm -hmm. down on the page. There's the way that each person talks and the way that certain families talk and, and there's like a rhythm to it and a sound to it and a, like a posture to it. And I've, I've been a good listener all my life. I mean, I, I, as a kid, I just didn't feel like I was listened to. So I did the listening. And plus, I mean, all the cheese man was super juicy growing up, listening to the, the cheese man in the kitchen and in the family. So I, I collected that. And I guess I really was able to fine tune my ear at a young age and, and really listen to that. Um, and that is absolutely reflected in our fascination, my husband's and my fascination for oral history. And that's definitely something that we still do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I tend to agree with that as well. And you have um, other stories as well, like um, Ini and Ifati, which I think, you know, are just a fantastic story of two young girls. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because we, we are, we kind of are coming up quickly on time, it's passing by so fast, um, is that, but one of the things I wanted to ask you is that like that, that story, um, it's a little longer, um, but it's a fascinating story. And I kept wanting it to continue on. And then I wondered, you know, because this could very easily be its own novel, and you must have been asked already this question, but do you anticipate that any of the characters or stories in this book could go on to um, have their own book in the future? Yeah, people have asked about Inifati, and Inifati actually was conceived, and I may as well say it now, uh, I, uh, as, a, as a comic book or like a graphic novel, and I wanted to have like a collection of adventures that these two girls might have together. Right. Um, so this was like maybe the opening or like the first yeah. issue or something like the first part of a whole series of adventures. Um, yeah. But then Vicious Ladies, the one about the all girl party crew. Yeah, um, yeah that could be its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that is always like an intriguing consideration for me. Um, who yeah. knows? We'll see. Yeah, well, we'd be excited to see that, I'm sure, because like I said, any of these characters could go on, a lot of these characters could go on and have their own lives and, and books, you know, it'd be fantastic. Um, I want to shift directions here a little bit because uh, I want to uh, maybe use this latter half to talk with you about this exciting opportunity. Uh, you have been selected as the uh, next DeWitter Fellow, of which we've only had one prior. It's a brand new program here at the 
creative writing department at UTEP, um, University of Texas here in El Paso, you know, and um, we did, we had the first writer was a poet. And then the second writer we wanted was to be a writer who did fiction. And, um, you know, your name came up and everybody was immediately excited. And, um, and it was, and then all of a sudden it was time we were like, oh, and she's got this new book out. Oh, it's wonderful. So, um, you know, the committee selected you and we're all excited. What are you looking forward to about coming to El Paso and coming to UTEP? Yeah, I mean, El Paso is a fascinating city to me. So I really look forward to getting to know the place. And the bilingual program at UTEP is so unique and uh, it must be so special to be part of it as a student, but as an instructor, as faculty, that is a whole other opportunity that I, I don't know if it's possible as of now anywhere else. It might be, but not not quite like El Paso. I mean, El Paso, as I've learned from people, is its own unique place and thing. And the people that come there are super special. So I really look forward to, to exploring the bilingual aspect more. I mean, I've never taken really truly a bilingual writing class. There were some elements of that in other workshops I've taken many years ago, but not not quite like this. So I really look forward to to working with uh, students in English, Spanish or Spanglish or anything in between. So it's just super exciting. Yeah, you'll get all of that for sure in your classrooms. Um, and I should clarify uh, that you'll actually, the residency is actually for the spring semester. So you'll come sometime in uh, late late January and stay till the end of the semester. And uh, that's what the DeWetter Fellowship is, is really about. It's about giving our students that UTEP in the creative writing program, uh, a one-on-one -on -one kind of engaged classroom experience with Latinx authors who are making waves out there. And you're obviously, you, you are, you know? And so uh, we're really excited to have you, you know? Um, I wanted to ask you, and actually one of the questions I had, we have a couple more minutes left here, was what projects do you have coming up? However, I checked this morning um, because I'm a fan of your husband's work as well, uh, Romeo Guzman's work, and I saw that he posted uh, on his Facebook, it says, Kadi and I just submitted a book proposal for a co-edited book thing. We're pretty good at this co-thing. <laughs> so how long have you two been doing this co-thing? And uh, you know, what's the, uh, what project, uh, what exciting projects are coming up? <laughs> yeah, so that particular one, we're pitching a book to uh, Heyday, uh, which is a press in Berkeley. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, a collection of writings about place, um, to put it simply about in California. So we awesome. are really continuing in, in, in the vein of, uh, writing about places that are typically ignored or just kind of overlooked, especially in publishing and in the media. Uh, so we've got neighborhoods that I'd never heard of before, actually. And we have some great writers like um, like Janice uh, Miller. Uh, she wrote about Black Panamanian uh, L.A. Uh, and then we have a, a piece from, about Dainuba, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Bryn... Uh, Bryn Saito, uh, she teaches at Fresno State, is writing about that. Um, so we have a whole bunch of pieces that uh, we hope will find the home somewhere. Um, so I'm fingers sure crossed, somebody publishes it. That's exciting. I'm sure they. I'm sure it will find a home. And you know, Heyday Books. Uh, I mean, I love them. They were my first publisher ever. They published Skin Types, my first book of my first book, which was poetry. Um, and they just were really wonderful people and still are. And, and uh, so, yeah, I have a special place in my heart for Heyday Books and the work that they do, especially particularly to California, for California authors, you know. So yeah. I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, 
Well, I mean, I guess we're running out of time here. Yeah, we should probably call it close. That's so fast. I, need, I you know, there's so many more questions I have here that I wanted to get to, but that's just how it happens when the conversation's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, can we keep going? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but we will definitely uh, Caribbean, you know, uh, we'll be excited to have you here, like I said, at UTEP, but you know, we're there, we're going to plan some events uh, with you when you're here and you know, the, the local community certainly will get a chance to engage with you more. Um, but otherwise, the online community will be able to find this uh, through our words on a wire and through our podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Great. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, everybody for listening. All right, take care and good luck uh, with all the things coming forward with your book. <laughs> Thanks, gracias. And that wraps it up for this edition of Words on a Wire. I'd like to thank our special guest, author, a fiction writer, and essayist, Caribbean Fragosa. Be sure to pick up her exciting new uh, debut collection of stories, Eat the Mouth That Feeds You. Also want to say thank you to our producer, Sam Casiano, and our podcast producer, Claudia Flores. I'm Tim Hernandez, and we'll see you next week, same time and place, right here on Words on a Wire, KTEP 88.5 FM, your NPR station for the Southwest. Mm -hmm.